Greetings, rabble rousers. My name is Jessa McLean. Welcome to Blueprints for Disruption, a weekly discussion dedicated to amplifying activism across Turtle Island. Together, we will examine tactics, explore motivations, and celebrate successes in disrupting the status quo. This podcast is a proud part of New Left Media. With the very recent decision south of the border of the Supreme Court to overturn Roe versus Wade, uh, we thought it'd be prudent here at Blueprints to have an in-depth discussion about reproductive justice here in Canada. This episode is with Robin Schwartz, and throughout it, we learned that access to abortion isn't as easy as we make it out to be. We also learn reproductive justice isn't all about abortion rights. And we also find out what steps we can take right now to secure some of those rights that we're seeing stripped set of the border. Like many of the discussions we have here at Blueprints, it's clear it's not just about controlling bodies or the patriarchy. There is a clear underlying class component involved. Let's listen and learn. So before we get into the nitty gritty of reproductive justice, tell people a little bit about who you are and and how you became so interested in in reproductive rights. Yeah, so for folks who haven't heard of me before, um, I uh, my name's Robin Schwartz. My pronouns are she, her. Um, and I wear many hats uh, in the Canadian reproductive rights movement. I've been doing it um, for several years. Uh, essentially, I was working on my PhD in Canadian uh, history, specifically looking at um, the history of single moms in Ontario, but I, I've been a, a 20th century historian of North America um, since for the last decade, and I was doing that work at Western where there started to be a really terrible anti-abortion group. And from there, if you fast forward um, six, five, six years now, um, I've done a lot of just different work. Um, around this in southwestern Ontario because uh, London is one of the most important abortion providers in Canada. So um, that connection. And then um, I worked at uh, the feminist nonprofit Shore Center in Kitchener, um, which is the only Planned Parenthood outside of um, urban, like outside of Toronto and and Ottawa in um, Ontario. Um, And then through there, I was the project developer or project. I was the project coordinator uh, for uh, ChoiceConnect.ca, which is the um, national access app that we created in partnership with uh, the local tech community in Kitchener. Um, I am an abortion doula, which means that sometimes I support people going to their appointments with abortions. I've driven people from Kitchener to various places. Um, I volunteer on the National Access Line, and I'm an organizer. So um, I believe that these issues are connected politically, and um, because of my history background, I very much see how um, change happens when we actually engage with politics, um, and that all of these issues are political. And so, yeah, um, it's I always find it hard to introduce myself because... Um, it's so much a part of who I am, but it's also like, it feels like it's been a whirlwind these last couple of years organizing around, um, this in part because of what was happening in the U S like, I just saw that, um, uh, my master's is in Canadian American relations. 
I, I was really just intimately aware of, of the differences in the relationships between the two countries. And as an academic and, and someone who was working with students, um, it felt important to me to, to do what I could. And, and the more I learned, the more I wanted to do. I can imagine with someone with your background and your interest and what's been going on south of us in the United States leading up to the most recent decision that, you know, has everybody talking right now. I imagine you saw this coming, you know. Um. Yeah, I did. It's It's been a weird, um, it, like, especially because I am a really big fan of the podcast um, Boom Lawyered, which I've been listening to, I now realize, since they launched. Their um, Rewire News Group is the only nonprofit news source in the United States that primarily focuses on reproductive justice and reproductive rights. And so, um, as someone who, like, I was doing archival research and I had a lot of time to listen to podcasts because when you're flipping through, uh, various old documents and just taking pictures of all of them so that eventually you can create a giant database of divorce case files, uh, you have a lot of time to listen to to different things, and I enjoy um, especially things like uh, I was listening to Media Indigena in, in 2015, 2016, 2017 a lot, um, and Boom Lawyered was the one place where basically um, the two hosts are both lawyers who have been following the Supreme Court and essentially analyzing it through like these intersectional feminist lenses and the lenses of social justice. And so they don't just talk about abortion. They've been talking about various cases because it's all connected with the, the mission that the Federalist Society, which for people who don't know, um, is the far right um, legal group that has been basically installing these justices and these bills. So um, if you look at like which schools the the far right um, justices went to, like they're all connected to this one organization that is a, a Christian nationalist um, legal society. Um, and so because of that, I it, and I've been listening like that podcast has been weekly, sometimes monthly for for years, I've just had this really clear understanding because of how smart these two women, uh, Jessica Mason-Piclo and Amada Gandhi are in terms of explaining this. But then I also, as I just said, was studying legal history in Canada. And so like, it was it was very much in my interest area in terms of being able to understand something like that because that podcast is very nerdy and very very funny like they make a lot of jokes and um even when like justice anthony kennedy kennedy re retired and we knew that someone like brett kavanaugh was about to be appointed to the court because um gorsuch's appointment when Trump was it first in office, that's the person who replaced Antony Scalia was just replacing Scalia, right? So like we're replacing like one with one, or um, no, who is it? Who Gorsuch coming in was a big like basically he, he we he's a terrible person. I'm not saying that he's not also evil, but like Brett Kavanaugh was a different level of extremism because of the types of things that the Trump administration had been doing in order to move the line on what was normal within the legal apparatuses of the United States between those two years. And so 
as soon as Justice Kennedy announced his retirement, which he is the one whose legacy was gay marriage. Like, his, he was a more centrist judge, but definitely, like, very pro-LGBTQ rights, but not an ally on women's rights in the same way. As soon as that decision was made, and it seemed kind of sketchy, at least that's what we were, like, they were talking about at the time in terms of, like, unlike, say, someone like uh, RBG, who probably, like, folks are right, she probably should have retired earlier, but at the same time also was mentoring these young female justices like Sonia Sotomayor. And so, like, one person isn't responsible for that, but at the same time, like, that's where, like, it was very clear pressure had been put on someone and and that, because Kennedy was never planning on retiring, um... And so anyways, that that moment and then and then RBG's death and them rushing Amy Coney Barrett through before um, the election in 2020 was essentially where that podcast was saying this was going to happen. And so and then they actually called the fact that it was going to be Dobbs uh, as the case because so many cases were coming up the Supreme Court docket as state level conservatives tried to be the state to pass the bill that ended Roe because Trump had just packed the courts so much with all of these Federalist Society justices, not even, like, people talk about the Supreme Court, but it's actually the circuit courts and, like, the lower courts that are allowing this stuff to float up. Um, yeah, so so all that to say, I wasn't surprised, but I also, um, I think I continue to be shocked, even though I shouldn't be, at how little fight the Democrats with power are putting up. Like, even as we were preparing to to talk tonight, I saw um, the them talking about how they're not going to end the filibuster again because of Manchin. And it's just like, hey, we can't keep being nice to these people, guys. But here we are. Um, so anyways, that's... Uh, no, I, I wasn't surprised, but I also... Um, the leak was shocking. I think the the leak of this was shocking in early May. Um, not because, like, leaks are... Sh- in terms of... Like, a leak from the Supreme Court is unheard of. Like, that's very, very, very much something where, like, we... Th- there's so much institutional, like reverence by the people who work there in particular like their clerks like there's and so many rules and things that like you're expected to do in order to work in those places in especially the left um that yeah I was surprised to see that happen um just because I would have thought that they being the anti-abortion movement wouldn't have wanted us to know that this was coming but who knows right like that's actually a question I have is like who leaked it from which side and why. Um, and that's very much me going back to my undergrad history self of being obsessed with Watergate because I just think it's fascinating. I just say it's fascinating. I like it's such a weird like two years of like who did what and why and, and how can we prove this is like history cracked to my brain. Like it's a it's this to my brain. That's a terrible edit that phrase out. Uh, but it's like, it's very fascinating to me with my ADHD and like the hyper focus of like, ooh, like espionage and like who actually did this. Um, and I feel that kind of similarly about this where maybe one day we'll get some cool movie. If it's a hero, if not, we won't. <laughs> like someone releasing this case. Like I totally get everybody um, 
focusing on it. And it, yeah, it, like you're right, it's been a bit of a drama over the last few years. And some folks saw the writing on the wall and, you know, some folks acted completely shocked. And, you know, I think it is a bit of a gut punch. But well, while we're all focused on the United States and the decision there, uh, I think, you know, it's in- critical that we take a look at Canada as well. Um, I would imagine that most people, we have this tendency as Canadians to point fingers at the United States and always look a little chuff and say, well, we're okay up here. Like there's nothing to worry about. But, you know, I interviewed a guest on New Left Radio, Genevieve Easterbrook, and it was very eye opening to hear the limited access that exists across Canada, especially rural and indigenous communities. PEI is without a clinic. New Brunswick is limited to three that are in hospitals and in urban settings only. So this was somewhat news to me. I think it would be somewhat news to other people as well. Can you touch on that? You know, what else would kind of shock people about Canada? And do we have reason to worry it would it would get worse than it already is? Yeah, so... I would say um, the first thing, and this is just me dropping in, the first thing I ever learned about this that really was the kind of historical fact that motivated me to start volunteering in this work in 2016 because I was going, um, I was getting divorced, I was going through my PhD comps, it was a really hard time, and my therapist was like, you should volunteer somewhere because you need something outside the university because all your friends and work and life and school are all here. And I was like, that seems good. Um, And at the time, I didn't share this publicly, but I had had an abortion um, while I was living in Scotland uh, on exchange as an undergraduate student in 2011. And I've since written about that. Like, this is not a secret. Um, I published my abortion story as a part of the 2020 Abortion Caravan Project that I co-edited. And from then, from 2011 until I learned this fact that I'm about to say in terms of shocking things, uh, I carried a lot of internalized shame and stigma with me that was not that was imposed upon me by the evangelical conservative community that I grew up in. I am from Kelowna, British Columbia, which is the home of Stockwell Day. And for folks who are on the left listening to this, you will know Stockwell for riding the sea dew in in the 90s and doing that. Uh, he had he had a sea dew on the lake uh, for some stunt. That was my lake. I uh, live near that lake. Um, and grew up near that lake. And so one of the most heartbreaking things that ever happened to me around that was I came back um, and had to go stay with a friend in Vancouver to redo a lifeguarding certification that I needed, like our research, um, because I had been the one of the head lifeguards at the pool here. And that was like the way I paid for my degrees and all this stuff. And so I went down and I had not told a bunch of people because I knew you don't tell people you're having an abortion. Um, and... For me personally, I had done everything right in right, quote unquote, and that's something we can also get into because after like a lot of my journey through this has been learning how much like even myself, like I talk in that piece for the 2020 abortion caravan about how I sat there judging the young woman across from me because I was there having an abortion with an IUD in and, and I had 
done all of it, everything. And what was this other person across from me and how she looked? Like, what had she done to, like, cause this to happen, right? And so... But that, so that was, those were feelings that I had in, in myself that I didn't know because I hadn't, like, unless you interrogate it, I, I often talk now about how if I got pregnant today, like, I don't want to be a parent. I've, I've made that decision based on um, a lot of the, the reproductive pain I've had in my life um, with IUDs, with abortions. Like, like, I just have had the worst luck with my uterus. And so I'm just not interested in, like, seeing what happens if we, like, grow a human being in there. Um, and so... Um, but I told my, one of my best friends from high school who I was staying with for this lifeguard research, and that was a really big deal because I hadn't told very many people in my life. Uh, I did tell my mom, I called her crying from the hospital at like four in the morning being like, this is what's happening. Um, cause they thought I might have an atopic pregnancy and I had to stay overnight. I didn't thankfully. Um, and for folks who don't know, an atopic pregnancy is when the pregnancy is in the fallopian tube. So that can be very dangerous. That's what's being talked about a lot in terms of, um, doctors in the U.S. seeking legal consults around those, which is, like, absolutely ridiculous, and they need to just, like, do a Henry Morgenthaler and save people's lives, for friggin' sakes. Um, but basically, I told this friend of mine, and I was like, hey, this happened to me, and it was a really big deal, and I was, like, pregnant for this whole month, and he turned to me and said, what do you mean? I, why wouldn't you want to be a parent right now? And I was 21. And so that lesson that I learned was you never tell anyone because if you tell people, they will make you feel crappy because they don't understand. But then I was in history and I was and all the stuff had happened and I learned through there's a really great article that um, is on the Canadian history syllabus at Western that I used to teach about the history of birth control in Canada by Agnes McLaren. And it's an older article, um, I think it came out in the 80s or early 90s, um, but it basically looks at, like, different types of birth control, so it's really fun to teach students, like, 19th century, like, what different materials and things did they use, and, and different ideas around pregnancy, but the big piece that I took away from there that actually gave me so much peace in terms of um, reinforcing what I knew to be true but had been told was not by my evangelical conservative community where they still protest every single day, Tuesday outside the hospital and there is a bomb door on our abortion clinic here in Kelowna because of how dangerous it is, um, is that pregnant people in Canada, what is now Canada, did not believe that abortion was wrong until the state criminalized it in 1892. And really not until the 1910s and 20s when then white male doctors, through the rise of the professionalization of the medical sector and the professional, like like we talk in Canadian history about the modernity and that time, like what does modernity mean and, and the ways in which the state in Canada is being formed and professions like social work becoming a real thing and teachers and, and just all, and doctors are part of that, right? Like the medical profession is set up um, from about the mid-1800s to about the 1930s in terms of what we understand doctors to be today. And through that process, white male doctors from privileged backgrounds decided that um, poor people, marginalized people, racialized folks, uh, Catholic people in Canada were having too many children, and that white middle and upper class Protestant respectable women were not having enough children. 
And so they started to tell people, and this is part of a broader, like, international push um, through the eugenics movement of the 10s, 20s, and 30s, where many of the things we're now hearing uh, from folks in the United States and Canada on the right um, are coming back. The idea that somehow the poor are, like, like, that there's a fear of this racial suicide, that if white middle and upper class women are not having enough kids, that somehow... Canada as we know it as the great country because then Canadian nationalism is so built around this sense of Britishness that is so extreme and so much more white and civil than anything that even exists in England like it's like all the people who wanted to be extra terrible left and more rule followers and formed upper Canada and, and it's just baffling in that way and so Essentially, what I was reading was that pregnant people and, and women like me never thought abortion was wrong until a doctor told them that. And I'm sorry, and, and that they we didn't believe that life began at conception. We believed that life began when you could feel the fetus move around 20 weeks. And that's still kind of, in my experience with, like you mentioned, Dr. Easterbrook, uh, like the different types of abortion, which I'm sure she would have talked about a little bit in terms of like the further into pregnancy you get, the more complicated the procedure is. In the, and the same less way likely that, like, you'll have access to it. Exactly. Less likely access, but it's also just like more complicated. Like you're you need more skilled surgeons. There's a doctor in the United States that we actually send people to from Canada if they're after 24 weeks because the procedure is not widely available here named Dr. Hearn, who uh, his best friend was the last doctor who was shot in the face in the United States in 2009. This doctor is 80. I refer to him as the Jesus of abortion, and I'm not religious, but that is who he is because all he's been doing is he's the person you send people to if no one else will help them. So he meets with every single patient one-on-one. -on -one. He looks at all of their stuff. He's been doing this for decades. And then he will help them even if they're later. And let, and these are like the most heartbreaking stories that you could possibly imagine. Like people who, like no one, I think that's like another thing just in terms of myths of, of things that most people don't understand about talking about abortion is that no one wakes up at 20 weeks with a willing, like if they, if you know you're pregnant, which like, I'm sorry, think about all the stressors that all of us have gone through. It is also possible to not know you're pregnant for that long because your period is messed up and you're working three jobs and you're just hoping so hard that this isn't it. And you're 18 and you have no idea and your mom's going to kill you that you had sex ever, right? Like that is an experience of people I've helped get get procedures and, and get to places like London, Toronto, Vancouver, like the sites that do the later procedures um, but yeah, if you're after a certain point in Canada, the access is very much on a, can you get a doctor to help you? And if not, you're flying to Boulder, Colorado to see Dr. Hearn and it's a four day procedure and we figure it out. That's, um, the, uh, access line that I, I help, um, Action Canada for Sexual Health and Rights. I'm one of their volunteers and I've been on there for four years and most of us are all like, 
high level reproductive health people like there's a former midwife like it's it's all people who just like understand how hard this is but get the system so well that we can make magic happen in 24 hours when you need a rushed passport which I've paid for out of pocket for multiple people because sorry if you don't have a passport you can't get that procedure and like I've been thinking so much about the arguments around passports that folks are having with their friggin' vacations. And I just want to say, like, the privilege, wow, to be able to, like, have that be your... Because I've had to take people into passport offices before and be like, hey, okay, we're going to drop $250 on this because you need it tomorrow or else you're going to be a parent. I want to ask you, that just kind of clued me into something. When we saw the passing of Roe versus Wade, I saw a lot of people on social media. It was a trend, especially on TikTok. Women are implying that they would help uh, a U.S. pregnant person cross the border, stay at their home. And, you know, it's done under the guise that they would go camping for a few days. But the understanding is that you could come up to Canada, get an abortion no matter what, um, stay at a stranger's house. And, and this was somehow a way of helping uh, U.S. women. I think that demonstrated to me uh, a lack of understanding of the current situation in Canada. But I mean, have you seen these videos and and kind of like a follow up to that? Like, sorry to pile on, but it's related. I um, Planned Parenthood in Montana you know, is kind of responding to this kind of activism, if we can call it that, and saying that they would actually deny uh, abortion care to folks coming in from states that had banned abortion. So what do you make of this kind of cross-border solidarity solution since you are talking about sending patients to the U.S. to get service? Yeah, well, so I and I'm I'm working on a piece that will hopefully be published in Ricochet in the next week or so. And I continue to say this and then my edit, I'm like, sorry, editor, because um, I've been doing so much media and also just like I put a lot of pressure on myself with my ADHD when I'm writing like this piece is really important to me and it's important to me because what it's going to say it needs to be said in terms of both of the two points you just brought up. And it's that, so getting into reproductive justice, which I know is what we're here to talk about and, and sort of what I would classify as the difference between just reproductive rights, which is the right to bodily autonomy, the right to access an abortion, the right to have that free from stigma, like, like that's a piece of it. Reproductive justice takes that and puts it in the framework of human rights as a movement. And that happened in response to, and, and folks continue, like I hear often, because um, reproductive justice is something that you will learn about in now in classrooms at the university level. Like I, I know there are classes on it at some schools. I know that uh, like gender studies departments, some of them, like a lot of PhD candidates who are in these areas will then like teach a one semester course on that. And so it's not that people aren't learning it. But I think that what I'm not seeing in terms of and, and it's not that there are there are small pockets of it, like people like me, um, I see like there's different programs and things um, that are happening on both sides of the border. But essentially, Reproductive justice starts because in the mid-90s, 
President Clinton, and his wife Hillary, are trying to put health care in place, and they do not want to talk about abortion. And so black women are meeting with Clinton, women who are part of, um, like, the southern United States doing sorts of maternal health work in particular, because um, for folks who don't know, the United States has some of the worst health outcomes for black women. Like, it is more dangerous to stay pregnant as a black woman in terms of your health outcomes than it is to get an abortion by, like, I can't remember the percentage, but it's by a lot. Like, it's a very... High stat. It is horrifying. And so, basically, that's their issue. They're, they're, this is very much grassroots women who are in the clinics doing the work in these abortion clinics in the South when uh, what is happening is Operation Rescue starts. So, Operation Rescue is the far, the most extreme anti abortion movement in the United States. They're the ones who bomb clinics and they start to see abortion providers as criminals and as like it's God's will to kill them. So, these black women are like the staff at these clinics. They're not necessarily the providers. They're activists, they're advocates, they're people raising money. And they have a meeting with with um, the first lady to talk to her about the healthcare plan. And they essentially say like, where's abortion in this? Like we need this in here because of the health outcome stuff I just told you and like how important and how expensive it is um, to get an abortion in some of these communities. And the response is essentially, well, we'll get there. Or, well, that's not, it's just important that we get healthcare started, right? And that's right in before the um, UN's population conference in Cairo, which also happens, I believe it's 1994. And so these black women, uh, one of whom was Loretta Ross, um, who I'm going to talk a little bit more about later because I've been doing courses with her for the last couple years. She's this incredible black feminist who coins reproductive justice officially, but, like, she has said and will say, like, it is not about me and, like, would not want me to just give her credit for it. But I know in academic settings, like, because we have to give one person a name for something, like, she gets the credit. But essentially, they come together as a collective and form Sister Song um, Women of Color Reproductive Justice, which is the the reproductive justice, like, organizing advocacy group that is North... um, they're technically North America wide, but mostly United States based to essentially say, hey, um, this is a problem. And there are different access points, like you just said, where there's hypocrisy in the clinics. Like there are people who are not doing what they say they're doing. There are really great providers who are literally self-sacrificing like Dr. Hearn and Dr. Tiller and all these people and these incredible black women and midwives. But we do not have the bodily autonomy that we deserve within this system that you're trying to create for us. And so what I am trying to, to sort of fast forward to what I was saying about that piece. Um, so since then, that this happens in 1995, and it's defined as uh, reproductive justice is three things. It's the right to have a child. So if you that includes things like IVF. That includes things like access to health care that's really good for your pregnancy. So like choice around place of birth, choice around like the type of like provider you want to have. Like these are all things that even like in on if we were talking about Ontario, like I would say we don't have these things. Like depending on where you live, it depends on how good can you even get a midwife? You don't know, right? It's the I right didn't to have not a choice ha- in my my OBGYN. Right? I had one choice. That was the only person available. 
And that's not choice. That's that's not a choice. Like, because what if you hated that person? Or what if they had, like, done something to you pre previously in a pregnancy, right? Like, like I, like, what if it was your se or second or third and this is, like, the only OB in the community and that's, like, or what if they're anti-abortion? Like, let's, because, sorry, do you know how many anti-abortion OBs there are in Canada? There's a lot of them. It's really scary. And there's anti-abortion anti midwives, too. Anyway, so these are problems, right? Like, these are things where, like, that tells me that the leadership is not tackling these issues in terms of teaching and educating and calling people in and, and like, because the classroom is where those actual conversations have to be happening if you're going, and, like, continuing medical education and things. But anyway, so that it's it's the right to not have a child so abortion to access to tubal ligations which we also know like oftentimes young women in particular are told you don't what if you want to have a kid one day like it's like the number of times I've heard that from friends or just people in my life who like talk to me about these things um and then it's the right to raise those children in a safe and healthy community which then connects it to all of our other social justice struggles, whether that's economic racism, like if a, it, like we're talking about the South and the United States, like the number of like factories and things that are placed next to black neighborhoods where like those families get poisoned and not, like these are all connected. And so they essentially come up with this framework to say, this is what we need to do. Like they, they sit down, they have a long meeting, um, there's many arguments and, and they come out of that meeting and this is what they're like, this is what we need. Um, and they've been organizing for it since uh, collectively across the United States. And so in Canada, that concept has started to pop up in academic spaces from folks like me who study this stuff. And, and because like, you can't be an academic in Canada and not like understand the U S scholarship. It's just like, and I guess you could be in it, but most fields know, like it's, it's just like, that's, we're connected. We live on the same landmass guys. Sorry. It's not, I wish I could do something about it, but, uh, I doubt it goes the other way though, you know, for American, you know what it, it actually doesn't. And that is a fascinating, uh, uh, total question I can actually answer for you because all I did for a year from 2012 to 2013 was read everything written on the Canadian-American relationship. I'm not joking. Um, and there's like two books written by Americans on us on that and <laughs> everything else is by us. It, everything else is Canadians writing about the U.S. Um, but like it makes sense. I, I don't no, know. No, I get hard... it. It's the sleeping next to the elephant um, I yeah but, that's uh I even though we need a better quote Jessa like we I'm need sorry. someone else no 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 <laughs> I'm saying like I genuinely have that quote in the article I'm working on on this oh, no. which is what I'm trying to get to say so essentially reproductive justice is put out there into the universe pew 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 it's awesome it's centers the experience of people of color like that's the whole point is that like if it's not led by people of color it's not reproductive justice so I personally am very careful. I do not say that I do, I say that I do reproductive justice-based organizing because it is not about me because I am white. I am definitely a part of the like queer community on that side and then the neurodivergent community and that is why I've had struggles around access for these things. But my bodily autonomy is not violated the same way as someone who is Indigenous in Canada. It's just not. And so that has to be the center of everything I do and everything I say. So 
there's this incredible activist in Canada who writes this amazing piece in 2012 about reproductive justice in North America. Her name's Jessica Yee Danforth. I don't know what ends up happening to her after writing this blog post because essentially Jessica Yee Danforth founds what is now the Native Youth Sexual Health Network with a collaborative of Indigenous youth. That organization is Toronto-based, but it is North, like Turtle Island-wide. And they do just really cool sex ed and sexual health stuff at the youth level on reserve, like, and, and in urban settings for Indigenous communities. And so Jessica writes this essay that is considered by historians to be the first thing on reproductive justice written by a Canadian that is called Reproductive Justice for You, For Me, For Always, something. And, it, and it's literally a blog, Jessa. Like, it is on the Wayback Machine or something. Like, that's how, like, it's just, like, put up there. And she presented it a couple times and published in the Toronto Star in some way. But then she has kids and disappears. And I assume she's just off living her best life. And I wish her all the best because I, too, wish I could be done with this bullshit. Um... <laughs> But she writes this essay calling on a vision for reproductive justice and saying that Canadians, like, basically that she has never seen herself in these spaces in Canada, in the abortion rights movement, in these, and that essentially, like, it, she connects it to, like, residential schools, like, the ways in which, like, colonization has done so many terrible things to her community. And that piece with it writing back to, like, the incredible Asian scholars who were writing about these things in the 90s and the Black women in the United States. Like, it's all a part of this beautiful scholarship that exists around this stuff. But in the Canadian context, I have seen a little bit of movement where some organizations are starting to do more. So, like, Action Canada for Sexual Health and Rights is really trying to take a reproductive justice-based approach to their communications and things. Um, and I've seen that change. Like, I've been a part of it. I've been holding them accountable as a volunteer, and, and they are working as as much as they can within a nonprofit in that way. What does that mean, you know, for folks listening? What changes do you see? I see, uh, well, so um, for one thing, they're calling out uh, the ways in which Roe versus Wade um, reinforces issues around reproductive labor in the United States and the ways that like black women's labor has been at the basis of um, the entire economy of the United States forever. And they name that in a statement in the UN in partnership. So that is a very good thing in terms of not just talking about, like, abortion access in Canada as though it's the same for all women or all pregnant people. We need to name this in terms of highlighting, like, the actual disparities um, that communities of color face in our country. And also um, the other thing that I've seen them do that is very promising um, is in the Canadian setting a lot of our anti-choicers are moving into anti-trans work first because I think that they see a lot of success happening um, in terms of just school board discussions and things. Like, we've seen that um, in Toronto. I know in Waterloo, where I am based in Waterloo Region, like, our district school board just had something come up about critical race theory. Like, just stupid things that... An, basically, right-wing groups are trying to get right-wing parents to do. Um, 
And so like actually naming those things I think is really important because a lot of nonprofits don't do that. They just talk about these things in a vague way rather than using specific examples of things that are happening in our communities right now. And then working to build capacity for the people in those spaces um, rather than it being extractive. And I know they're very early in that process, so I don't know what it's going to look like. But that was based on feedback that a number of us um, in the movement gave them in terms of things we wanted to see. And, and I do see with their new strategic plan and stuff like Things are things are moving, and um, to give a shout out, Frederic Shabbat, who is the manager of um, public public education manager, what director of 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 education or something at Action Canada. I can't remember what Fred's title is now because she's been there forever. She's fantastic and um, just really someone who is doing the background work necessary to be able to actually like speak to these issues and and elevate different voices. Um, particularly like women of color working in midwifery and, and those sorts of things. So um, I see it happening, but it's it's very early because um, Action Canada is a very young organization, even in the Canadian context. They've only been around for like seven years, eight years now. They're, they were the merger of a couple organizations um, that did abortion rights work and then basically funding cuts under Harper and various things. Um, made it so that they had to make those decisions. And so I think they're hopefully um, doing some of it. Because the access line until recently was not funded in any way. It was something that basically like the phone number that you call to figure out where to go for an abortion in Canada. Yeah, just run by a bunch of volunteers. And then one part-time staff member who, uh, same thing, shout out to Britt Neuron, lovely human, now works uh, for Women and Gender Equity Canada. Uh, they managed the access line for six years and did tons of incredible work to help people access abortions, but uh, really felt the burnout from that responsibility. And um, I think that that's where um, I, so what I, all this to say, what I am trying to say is that I'm working on a piece for Ricochet that calls for, that builds off of what Jessica E. Danforth said, that calls for white women in particular because um, a lot of my work since uh, Hillary Clinton's loss and my realization that my liberalism was a big problem uh, because I'm from I'm from a conservative town literally no one here is NDP like or left like it's really weird and, and as in like so I liberal met the, like, was two left to you <laughs> It no a hundred percent. We elected a liberal it. once. It was like literally in twenty fifteen. We elected one liberal, and I was like, oh my god, like Christmas is here. The commies are moving <laughs> because, in. Because like I know. Um, but anyways, so so all of these things, like I just really, I think because of my education, understand uh, my position to privilege, and I really try to keep that up. Um, like that's I ongoing. I'm constantly learning and listening and, and trying to figure out where I fit in this big picture because I'm a historian. And so I'm trying to write something that is essentially talking to those people you mentioned who are trying to open their homes, but also talking to people in our movements because I see very clearly, and I hope I'm wrong about this, but I don't know if I will be, and that's going to be really, really crappy. <laughs> 
Um, I think that Canada's 30 years behind on the trajectory that the United States is. I used to think we were ahead, but I think that was me being naively ex like Canadian exceptional because my own research into Canada's divorce law shows that Canada's like legal system around divorce is 30 years behind the rest of the Western world. So like example, uh, in 1968, um, it became legal in Canada for the first time to divorce someone in the case of abuse ever. When you say we're behind. Oh, I'm saying so when I say we're behind, uh, basically what I'm talking about is so Canada updates its divorce laws in 1968. That same change in terms of recognizing that, you know, abusing women is not OK. And maybe that's a reason to leave a marriage or desertion. The United Kingdom and the U.S. make those changes in the 1930s. It takes our people, um, one of the, the folks, if uh, anyone is, is nerdy enough and, and wants to learn about a really cool person in Canadian history who is a leftist, um, or at least like an interesting leftist, just someone I f I'm fascinated with. Uh, his name's Arthur Roebuck. He becomes a senator and he's like 90 when he does this stuff around divorce, because prior to that, um, divorce used to be a national legal issue for some provinces. And so, like, if you lived in New Brunswick, you had to write the Senate and be like, hey, my husband cheated on me, because adultery was the only reason you were allowed. And that was the system we had in the 1960s in Canada until uh, that changed. So what changes do you want to see happen then? Like, uh, you know, when I was talking to Dr. Easterbrook, they weren't sure whether, you know, legislation is the answer or what, what the answer was in terms of like law and politics. Uh, so I, when I say 30 years behind, I'm not talking, in, in abortion, I, I want to be very clear and I'm going to say this very, very clearly. Canada does not need an abortion law. The idea that we need an abortion law is anti-abortion propaganda. It comes from the anti-abortion uh, nonprofit in Calgary called We Need a Law, which is the legal arm of the anti-abortion movement. But when I say we're 30 years behind, what I'm actually thinking about is Hillary Clinton. And I'm thinking about a lot of white women in the United States who are probably feeling pretty stupid right now for the same reason that I felt really stupid the morning after Donald Trump won. And I literally had told all my students like, no, of course, this is never like, because you're teaching this stuff and, and of course students are asking you questions and then I have to teach them that day and explain to them uh, how this happened. Um, and my own profs don't know, right? Because no one quote unquote saw it coming. Um, but what I'm saying is in terms of our understandings of where we're at with our social and political change and our institutions, our I'm wave seeing a of lot feminism. of- It's complacency. It's very much- like, you look at what happened with Idol No More and how incredible that movement was and the leadership of those Indigenous women and how that continues in terms of land back and the, and the momentum that is happening in those spaces. That is not, like, we are not connected with them. Like, and I say, and when I say we, I'm talking about the reproductive rights movement. Like, I don't see... Like, like those pieces aren't there in terms of shared solidarity. And I know there are people who are going to hear this and say, well, what do you mean? Like, of course I show up for things. But like the risk is different, right? Like me tweeting something and saying I support this Indigenous community member is not an action. That is 
like Twitter, Twitter has a place in my activism. Absolutely. The place is connecting with other people like you and, and other people who like care about this stuff and are sharing information with each other, really. But it is not the place like I don't consider my digital organizing to be the same as the type of stuff that I do when I'm standing at a table at Western University beside the anti-abortion movement. Like it's just not it's not the same work. Um, I'm able to, in that setting, like if we have a pro-choice table that's set up next to the anti-abortion club, um, I wrote a piece for the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada's newsletter with uh, Madeline Vork, who is a my co-organizer from Western. She was the undergrad. I was the grad student. We united. Uh, she was the chair of the Gender Equity Network at the time. And we would just, like, put these tables together, not because we were trying to be like, oh, uh, we're going to defend abortion. Because that's the other thing. I want folks to understand that I actually don't believe in debating the other side. Like, that's the other thing. I don't think we need to debate them. I actually think that debating them and platforming them, you have no idea how many times, usually men, but sometimes not, students would come up to me at our pro-choice tables, which our pro-choice tables included things like accurate information about abortion, accurate information about sex ed, condoms, fun pins that you could wear to make yourself feel better because you just got harassed on your way to getting uh, your coffee. Uh, just like nice things that made people feel good and like feel like being on campus was okay and that like if you had an unplanned pregnancy that like someone would be there for you, which again, obviously for me, I was thinking about myself because like even though like I didn't, I didn't, write about my abortion until 2020. Like, that was the decision that I made in the con that year to be like, no, I'm going to say it publicly because before then, I was afraid in doing this stuff that them, anyone knowing that would discredit me because I know how women activists get seen as emotional, get seen as this. And, like, now that I know I have ADHD, it's even more, like, I understand it more intimately. But I always knew deeply in my soul that if my own students who, when I was teaching, like, the, the article I mentioned earlier about um, condoms, like, early condoms made from, like, various animal skins and things, uh, I knew if I talked about my own abortion that I would lose them. Because I knew that, in in some case, it would be okay. And I think I, I do, like, my memories are, are obviously fit, sketchy because of ADHD, but and I've had so many students and so many conversations about this with students because when I was TAing, like, if you came to my office, I'd be happy to talk to you about this one-on-one -on -one privately. And I would talk to you, like, everyone, I'm sure um, folks will remember last year, all of the violence that happened at Western around a week with the sexual violence that was happening in residences there. Like, we all knew that stuff was happening. Like, that's nothing friggin' new. Do you know how many female students came up to me to talk about dating culture at Western and how frustrated they were about it and how, like, disappointing it was because, like, my students, like, sorry, women in history are nerds, guys. Like, just to be very clear, like, I am a huge nerd. And in order to, like, be in that field, especially in the last decade when getting a history degree has gotten you nothing, like, I got my job, like, I'm I could have my job grad, without this degree, <laughs> no, right? Like, it's like, like, genuinely, like, it has, like, my job right now, I use history every single day writing uh, grants for a mental health nonprofit in Cambridge. I love it. Um, and doing comms for them, and equitable and inclusive comms that are actually, like, accessible, i.e. someone with a grade three education can read it. Yeah. Wow. What a, what a con 
concept to like make sure that the stuff you're making actually makes sense for the person coming in who doesn't have the bachelor's degree because there's just this divide. But all that to say, um, like I knew that that would open me up to criticism and attack because anytime that you bring yourself into academic spaces, but especially history, you will get someone is going to say something that absolutely is just so mean. Yeah, I, I just knew that that would open me up to harassment um, because I was always very outspoken with my views around history and that would open me up to male students um, questioning my expertise. And that was that's a regular thing in history. Like I was on the... Um, uh, Active History, uh, Active History's podcast, uh, which Active History is a really cool um, website that uh, just has really awesome history posts by historians who like do care about the community and want people to be able to like access history in a way that is like makes sense and connects with their lives. And so um, getting to go on their podcast earlier this week was really cool for me because I've loved their work forever. Um, but yeah, it just like the ways that... Um, that discipline, like history is just a hard, it's a hard place. It's a very conservative still, even the women are conservative, but they don't realize they are because of where the line is in terms of the discipline itself. And so, um, and Western is a very conservative school and its department is known for being conservative in this way too. And so it was very, yeah, one of those things where um, I knew if I said it, that way rather than just being like oh this is something I care about and I'm passionate about and like probably in some ways Hillary Clinton losing made it easier for me for people to not ask that question of like is this why Robin's doing it even though um yeah I, I feel like my friends knew and my students knew but I never like that was very intentional I never said it publicly and then I wrote it as my I actually that's not true I said it publicly once in 2019 um, actually early 2020 at a meeting in Cambridge because at work, because in like a community meeting that I was at for work to like share resources with other nonprofits, because Cambridge has a really terrible anti-abortion crisis pregnancy center, which is another thing most folks won't know. Um, fake, so there are right? tons, like they, they're misleading, they're, but they're, and... they're misleading, but they now I, so one of the pieces I'm working on that I owe my editor, sorry, Fee, uh, is, um, that's the on, second time you said that. <laughs> I, Hey man, I'm like happy poor to, <laughs> it's because of, uh, it's just been so bad, Jessa. I like feel terrible. Like it's, I've hit this like weird, I'm trying to learn to be a real person again with my ADHD diagnosis. And then, and then stuff keeps happening. And I'm like, no, I can't write this week. Cause so I need to do this. A wrench in your week, right? Like, well, or more like the Ontario election, I would say that that is more than anything. I, um, it's okay. Uh, I will, so I was on a very good campaign, um, and I think that that's, in terms of something to make you feel good, uh, silver lining, um, Cambridge fucking showed up. We did not win. We should have. Marjorie but Marjorie Knight. Marjorie Knight, uh, I was with her every single day that I could be. Um, I would have been there more if the SCOTUS stuff hadn't happened the first, the day the election started, and that was really fun. That was why that day was so hard, because I was like, oh, cool. So I'm about to watch what I am seeing as the most despondent election in Ontario history, and it's going to feel terrible, because in 2018, when Ford won, I felt pretty good. I helped elect Terrence Kernahan in London North Centre for the first time. I was one of the four. There was four grad students. We canvassed our butts off 12 hours a day. 
I will, I will not ever be able to do that again. But winning that seat and taking down Kate Graham was the because of how I feel about white feminists and fake feminists in this space (laughs) was one of the best months of my life, even though I was exhausted and like, probably like have mental health problems as an issue. Um, But anyways, but Marjorie's campaign was different. Um, I, I know how hard that election was for everyone. Um, like, I don't think anyone had a good time, uh, but Marjorie, myself, Jose, who is, um, the new Southwest rep on Provincial Council, and, uh, Allison Blagden, who, um, used to be one of Sousa's staffers. Anyways, it was just a very, actually, healthy campaign, which was nice. Like, like, I, I went to work on that campaign specifically and intentionally. I had my choice of campaigns in Waterloo Region, and Cambridge is where I work, but also Marjorie's a friend of mine, and she is the real deal. Like, she still makes $41,000 a year, and like me, she is doing way too much work for way too many people, um, and has had tons of health issues because of that, but she just keeps going, and so, um, I am devastated forever that she is not my MPP, and... I don't know if she'll be able to run again just because, like, well, you know this. Like, you run twice. It's it's hard. You put your heart and soul into it. And um, it feels really hard when it doesn't come through, especially when the other side uh, doesn't campaign at all. And the other thing is we were um, genuinely um, campaigning against Belinda um, from the New Blue Party. And so for me, that was really important in terms of my broader work around reproductive justice and these things, because, uh, that is fascism. Uh, they had car flags with the new blue logo on that they were driving around all day while doing get out the vote. And I was like, oh, that's a little Nazi-like, don't you think? Um, so yeah, that, that, that from- That's a motivator. That, that for me was, is more of why I'm, I'm having a hard time writing just because, um, I'm really mad and upset still, and I don't know um, when that's going to go away. And it's it's said everyone. Like, it's friends of my, like, my friends, like, I've been having fights with friends I shouldn't be. Like, it's it's really hard. Um, and I know it's like, yeah, I, I, um, I, in sort of to, as a good transition here, that's like to give folks silver lining. Um, part of what I've been doing, um, around my reproductive justice work for the last couple years is, um, and I sort of alluded to this earlier, Loretta Ross, who created and, and was the first director of Sister Song nationally in the U.S., has now moved into um, some new theory stuff. Uh, she is proof that you can drop out of a PhD and get a tenure-track job at, like, 60, which I hope to do one day, maybe. Um, like, sincerely, that happened to her. I was like, oh, my God, What? Like, Loretta dropped out of a PhD, too? Um, so that makes it... That she always makes me feel better when I have a bad day. But <laughs> she has been writing this stuff because she's seen, particularly on the left, and I think um, the fight in 2016, the, the long fight uh, of the Bernie bros versus the Clinton people and the continuation and, like, kind of the polarization of those two groups, which, like, I personally don't even know where to feel or sit in because it's, like, weird, right? Like, it's, I know, like, now I'm in Bernie, but at the time I felt this way, and it's, like, like, there's just so many emotions, you know what I mean? Like, flying around. We're so problematic this way. Like, I'm sure the right sits there and listens to this. It's, like, what is wrong with them? And so that's what Loretta and 
and and it's not just Loretta. She would say like she didn't come up with this concept, but basically her and a bunch of organizers saw have been seeing all this, and they've been doing this work forever. And so basically they were like, we need to do something because the polarization is actually the biggest problem and the ways in which like we can't even have a conversation with each other. We can't like work together. And there's it, it's it's like we're fighting with the people who we agree with 90 percent of everything on rather than fighting the people who maybe agree with us on 50 and we need to get them to 70 so that we can get that new housing development built because if not it's not going to happen um she has created um essentially the concept it's it's her and lone tran who are the lead educators um it's called calling in the call out culture and so basically she like actually i think the last one is tonight um i'm missing it right now oh great or, or like three hours earlier um but it's essentially she offers these online courses. They're $20 and they're going to do them for as long as it takes to teach people how to have hard conversations with each other again through social justice language. And she essentially her like Lone talked about this in like some blog posts. But and essentially she's created a whole framework with them and then they do like zoom workshops where like you're put into a breakout group and you have to like have hard conversations and so um those spaces I've been attending like I attended because it's 20 bucks so like anytime she runs it I just sign up and then I go as many times as I can and I'll keep going and um she's done a couple um they did like more like discussion spaces in the winter because they didn't have the capacity to teach the full course. So there was like a week where like literally like every left-wing organizer that I admire across North America was talking about like perfectionism in our movements and how we deal with that and like the feelings that we feel. And so just like um, that's definitely where my brain is headed in terms of this work because like reproductive justice is the goal. That's the framework. But what we've been missing, I think, in terms of is the how in some ways and not that like black women and, and indigenous like like what people of color have been showing us marginalized folks like like there is organizing happening, but it's not happening together in the way that, say, the 1970 abortion caravan was a national movement where women drove from Vancouver to Ottawa, but what people don't know is every single place along the way they had people to stay with, they had meetings, they talked about abortion, they had a coffin they drove around with, they literally went everywhere. And my favorite part of um, the book on this, which uh, Karen Wells published in 2020, and that was part of the project we were working with her a little bit, is that um, as someone from BC who has many feelings about Toronto and, and people from Toronto, uh, Jessa, <laughs> I know you're from Scarborough originally, but like Toronto, the beast is like the fights that the feminists from out West had in Toronto were like, unlike anything that they had in any of the other stops. They got along in Regina, they got along here, but they get to Toronto and like all the Toronto women are like, well, you're not doing this thing right and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, wow, classic. Um, and so, like, how do we, like... No wonder everyone hates us. <laughs> but, like, how do we, like, get past that, right? And so, basically, this framework that they've come up with, um, that they're now building, like, um, more, like, somatic, like, learning how to even regulate your own emotions as a part of um, social justice work, because I know, like... You know, folks I like us need that, man, desperately. Right? We need to know the these things. The left in general, I think, is 
full of neurodivergent people that obviously, you know, sometimes struggle with emotional regulation. But I'm fascinated by this, you know, work on the polarization of the left. I mean, it wasn't on the agenda when we're, you know, when I think of reproductive justice. Once you give me the three tenets, though, uh, it it became clear that it was very all-encompassing. And it surprises yeah. me that, you know, with all the intersectionality, intersectional approaches that most people have, that that work isn't being done together, you know, that there is still that gap. Because, you know, I took poli-sci, I learned about the different waves of feminism and the problems that lay within and, you know, I think it was always kind of taught to the point where we were getting better, you know, like where we were starting to center marginalized voices and and, and work alongside and understand our, know our lane, you know, so to speak. And are you, are you kind of feeling that's not quite the case yet with, especially when we're talking about reproductive justice? Yeah, I, so my thought on that, and this is very much even bigger picture and like more meta than you would even expect, is that I think that the way that we teach those things is so Eurocentric, so corporate, so like, like the, the neoliberal agenda starts around the time that women's studies departments get more funding. Like, women's studies, really, like, a couple people get hired in the 60s and 70s, but it's, like, the 80s and 90s in Canada where we're seeing, like, the hiring that we are seeing now around Indigenous issues at universities was happening for women's studies and gender studies. And so... I think that, and this is like, historians are guilty of this, but when when other disciplines teach history, historians always get angry because, um, like, we, like, it's a joke in history that political scientists think they're historians, but they actually have no idea how to do it because they literally don't look past, like, five years, and it's like, so, but they then steal our students by being like, but we'll give you a 90 if you come here. Actual things that are said at Western by the political science department to history po- prospects of students so um it's things that have been said to me by students me why you am would i getting a, a 90 in poli right? sci between our, our regional or i'm a york university sir, grad hey, it's no, york is a good school york is very oh, by that oh, i good. mean you like don't I, my school i <laughs> just, i love your school very just my much my city and my uh, major <laughs> yeah exactly that's it which is fine that's I, okay I we're allowed that. to we can have disagreements we can bond on other uh, things robin Exactly. Um, And York is actually, I had a very lovely summer at York uh, while the last transit line there was being constructed in 2017. Well, that's about a seven year span. That could have been any time. Yeah, but uh, it but uh, it was right when I was about to open um, researching at the Ontario Archives because I lived there in a tiny, I lived in the basement of a. Well, there you go. I was every day. There were awesome decolonized posters, um, like, on the other side, because I was, like, the Starbucks was, I had to, like, walk around a bunch of construction (laughs) um, to get my coffee. And, yeah, by the, like, film film department, um, there was some really cool, like, decolonized stuff. And I was, like, oh, my God, because, like, Western would never, Western has a picture of, like, the governor of the Bank of Canada on the side of our faculty building in a giant, creepy, like, he's looking at you way. Um, or Cameron Bailey from TIFF. He's on the side of the alumni building. The greatness starts here at Western. Oh, oh no. Uh, 
that's yeah western's really good at branding there that's why uh why do you think our education system is the way it is right now steven lecce learned everything he needed to know uh in his four years getting a poli-sci degree at western jessa Oh my god! Wait, we kind of went on a tangent and talked about yeah. your experience with the NDP. So I'm going to use mm-hmm. that to transition into something I told you I was going to ask you to talk about. Is you made a statement, and you know I'm not arguing with you by any means, but I wanted you to expand on it. That that even though you talk about the law, you've studied you know its history, and you engage in electoral politics. You know, you feel like law and politics are not our friends. You know, you put that on Twitter the other day. I totally get that between the Supreme Court and the loss in in Cambridge and just general in in Ontario. But more deeply, what do you mean by that? Yeah, for sure. Well, so and that's actually always been true of our movement. So the 1970 abortion caravan, they were not allowed to go into parliament. They literally had to sneak their way in and they chained themselves to the parliament. And I still like the fact that people don't name drop that in left wing spaces all the time is devastating. I don't know enough about it. I'm definitely needing to go on YouTube. So you need to go on a deep dive into the abortion caravan because the best part of my pandemic first wave was be was working with the women from the caravan who one of them is a social work prof at UMBC in Northern BC. Like all of these women who were on the caravan grew up to be like the cool leftists that like we all all want to grow up to be, which is awesome. And I've become friends with them. So like Ellen Woodsworth was the first openly gay, I think, MP uh, city councilor in Vancouver. Like, so th- when you do a deep dive into these people, it's like, holy crap, like there are like 60s and 70s like feminists. And they would be like, no, we're not. Like they genuinely would tell you not the like F that word. I'm not. Yeah. Um, but but essentially, um, like that moment, Pierre Lee Trudeau like ran away from them. He literally like one of my favorite um, CBC documentaries is on the abortion caravan, like CBC Radio. Um, and there's a clip of him saying, because this is after he's passed the 1969 omnibus bill to make abortion legal, but only under advisement of three doctors, if you stand in front of them and say, uh, yeah, yeah. Some people that was can't find it- one, an appointment with so one. This, well, this was basically hospitals in Canada in the 70s were allowed to set up abortion clinics. And they that was essentially the law was protecting the doctors. It was not protecting pregnant people. It was about can we make it so that this is available sometimes when doctors feel it's allowed? And so like like part of Dr. Easterbrook's actually a part of a legacy in London where they essentially ignored that and just like it was a formality, i.e. the doctor who was the abortion provider had friends who were also doctors who knew what he was doing and just signed off on all the forms. In other settings, it actually was you had to stand in front of a committee and beg your case and explain why, like, your mental health would be bad if you had a baby and why is this and why is that and, like, you're too young and all this stuff and hope that they would say yes. And that's only if the hospital had set it up. PEI, as you already identified, didn't have a clinic until... 2017, and that is because white women in PI organized on the island in the 80s after this bill was passed to get their therapeutic abortion committee taken away. So they basically filled hospital boards. They would fill those meetings. This is all tracked in a book called No, um, no Choice 
by Kate McKenna, who is a CBC journalist. Um, and it's really good. And it looks at how even um, the for the first female premier of PEI, Catherine Kalbeck, who's a conservative, was actually one of the women on the hospital board who was the deciding vote to get rid of this. So her claim to fame before she became premier was that, like she had organized to remove abortion access from the island of PEI. Um, so that's, that's when I say those things, um, and I think particularly um, in recent years, I've become extremely frustrated with the Liberal Party of Canada and Justin Trudeau fundraising off of our work this way. Like, they do the same thing the Democrats do. Every single friggin' election, they brought up abortion. I was the first one to talk about Andrew Scheer and his problematic views in a, like, actual setting of, like, journalistic. Like, I, I published a piece in Ricochet in 2018 that connected him to Sam Oosterhoff and looked at the anti-abortion movement and the ways in which they were organizing through party apparatuses in order to try and basically get enough people in who held their views. The same way that, like, we would organize for, like, someone to be the, I don't know, nominee of this race and hope that that happened, right? Like, like and they've had the same frustrations in terms of, like, that came out with the Michelle Rempel piece to to make that connection for folks. The, like, complaint, like, her, her releasing why she wasn't running for the United Conservative Party leader last week. I hate Michelle Rempel so much, but I actually hardcore respected that thing she wrote in that, like, she wrote about all of the bullshit that happens in our political parties that cause it so that, like, change doesn't happen because someone like her would be spending too much time fighting with the anti-abortion movement who we can't piss off because, well, we need them because if they aren't there, then Doug Ford doesn't have his three more votes that he needs to destroy everything, even though he's not actually anti-abortion, he's just an opportunist, right? Like, and so the liberals love federally to pull out the boogeyman. They've done it both of the last elections. It I like I was helping um, B. Sanzubi during the 2021 election running in the one riding where a liberal MP was forced to resign because of sexual assault allegations. And then Mike Morris is our MP for the only Palestinian candidate in Canada. And like being like, excuse me, like like how the heck is the conversation being dominated locally when I'm at the door by like abortion and these people don't even know what they're talking about. Like it's just like the it's baffling to me how little is often done and has been done since the early 90s when the Ontario NDP under Bob Ray set up the first abortion clinics. Um, and I think that's also something that folks need to know um, in terms of things that make me proud to be a part of um, our party in various ways because um, even though, like, I can, I, I also don't like Bob Ray um, in any way, as in I joke. He haunts I, us I'm gonna make in Ontario forevermore. Uh, this, this joke needs to be on this podcast, so I'm going to say it. Uh, I have been making this joke to everyone I know that I really need him and Thomas Mulcair to be on, like, a Big Brother-style show together that, like, we all get to watch until we, like, feel okay about the feelings you just said of, like, the haunting of both of them. And so, like, they just, like, no TV, no nothing. They're on slop. Like, just for my entertainment. Will they and bond? That's, like, the... I think so. I think they have to, right? Like, I don't know, Will though. Will we warm this is up an to them or hate them more? I don't know. I don't know. That's... Either. I feel like... 
I it's I just think it would be it would be feel really good if they didn't have access to social media until and like couldn't like touch the outside like let's just put them in that box for every election until like because like I don't need to hear what they think or their hot takes anymore you've had enough power like I don't understand like can you please just anyways um yeah that's and so I I see I there's a lot of really good work that is done right after the Morgenthaler case led by Dr. Morgenthaler and various colleagues of his, um, Dr. Scott, who um, the Scott Clinic was a clinic that used to exist in the GTA, but was forced to close because Dr. Scott retired. And the ways that abortion clinic laws work in Ontario is that they are done through the Ministry of Health, the same as the as long-term care homes. And so if you lose that site license, you lose that site forever. And so it's very much something where, um, to sort of fast forward, we have not seen an expansion of abortion access in Ontario specifically in terms of, like, creating new abortion clinics. Not new, like, there are new providers being trained, and I think there are hospitals that um, have added abortion care to their rosters, but they're not being public about it because of how anti-abortion those communities are. Um, I'm thinking about places like Sudbury and Sault Ste. Marie, where I've heard there are abortions being done sometimes and doctors will fly in, but it's not like 100% guarantee and it depends on the limit and all these things. Like, um, So anyways, but, but the thing that happens in the early 90s, uh, well, it's two things that are reproductive justice related. Midwifery is... Uh, brought into the like medical system once again as a as a thing um it becomes like the ontario midwives are set up under the ontario ndp um and that's a really big deal and there is like in terms of things if i what could we organize around what things would i like to see um there is a thing that the Ministry of Health can do that they do already still and has still happened under Ford, just not very much because of all the cuts, um, where midwives can get um, essentially licenses through the Ministry of Health to do things like IUD insertions and Mifigamiso, which is the abortion pill. And so midwives uh, in other countries do a lot of other reproductive health related things and that this would you be don't to increase need an OB access. to do. Right? Like that it would, would increase be... access. And also, I believe midwives offer better care because midwifery um, is very much grounded in reproductive justice type principles. It doesn't mean they always act that way. Obviously, individual practitioners are individual practitioners, but consent is very much as part of what you learn in midwife school versus um, what you learn in, in the medical system and, and the ways that um, like OBs and, and gynecologists are very much um, a part of the legacy of colonization and white supremacy. And a lot of modern OB work was practiced on on black women's bodies and, and in, enslaved in the United States and in uh, around the Civil War. And so like that's a difference, whereas midwifery has always been there. It's women who have been catching babies because women have always caught our own babies. And that is like... Like, that's part of why the Indigenous reclaiming a midwifery is so important. But you can see how that would improve access if, like, 
say, I don't know, we made it so that every single midwife, no matter what, could dispense mifigimiso because it's not something that, like, like a family doctor can do it. A family doctor can do medication abortion. That is something that the National Abortion Federation of Canada has been working aggressively on in terms of improving access in recent years. I don't think a lot of um, people know that. Yeah, so they're educating a lot of family doctors in terms of because the family doctors themselves don't know that because if you haven't kept up with that one part of your education, why would you, right? And and that should be required, but it's not. And so midwives are where it's like, okay, like I personally, the last time I had my IUD inserted, I went to Crampoint Midwives in Hamilton because I didn't want an OB to do it, because I'd had so many terrible experiences with various OBs over the years, um, because of what I now know is the combination of hemochromatosis, which is a thing that causes my blood to hold too much iron, and ADHD, which there's not a lot of research on our bodies and, and the way we respond to pain, but that is a thing that I have personally experienced, and so Uh, I wanted the very best, and I know a midwife is the very best because they are never going to hurt me unnecessarily because it is all about me and my comfort, and they're going to explain everything. And, um, yeah, my my best friend, Brenda Dong, is a midwife. Um, She is lovely. She actually graduated during the pandemic, which was incredibly trying, as in she did her fourth-year placement in 2020. So she had to learn to be a midwife in fourth-year as the pandemic was starting, her placement got pushed back. It got pushed around. It got this. It got that. And she did it all. And she's a practicing midwife in Cambridge today. Um, but she would love nothing more than to be able to offer people like me a full spectrum of reproductive health services. And that is what people in the United States are organizing around. They are There is a clinic in Nashville, Tennessee called Choices that is a birthing center and an abortion clinic. Because the problem is that we've separated these things out because of the patriarchy. It has nothing to do with what women and and pregnant bodies and the ways in which like pregnancy has always happened. Because the story I told you earlier tonight is all about how these things were connected and then torn apart, right? And so like, that's where like, I've been pushing um, both behind the scenes and then also publicly always for midwives. And midwifery pay equity is a huge one, right? Like the fact that the Ford government continues to, to, and it wasn't just Ford, it was Kathleen Wynne too. The midwives have been winning pay equity cases at the Ontario Superior Court for at least five years now, um, if not longer, because they are underpaid if you look at how much money OBs make compared to them, or even family doctors for the same thing. It's not okay, and it's built into the Ministry of Health because midwives, unlike doctors, can't bill OHIP. And so they get paid at the end for their course of care for the entire pregnancy. So that means they have to have relationships with different OBs because if they need to transfer your care because you become high risk and they can't deal with it because the one thing midwives can't do is a C-section or like really high risk pregnancies, um, they have to have that relationship where they don't get paid for the labor. they Because the other thing is midwives will see you from nine weeks into your pregnancy up until like I think it's six months after birth, they do home visits. Like they're forget. Yeah, you don't amazing. get that from they, your like, OB, right? You don't usually get to see them until you're much later in your pregnancy, unless you're high risk, and then you get one appointment. Unless something there's complications, you get your six week. Right, post. unless it's devastating. 
if you're seeing an OB that much early, something bad has happened. Like that's not, and, and that means like everyone's body's different. Like that's the other thing with pregnancy that I think, um, folks listening, something I firmly believe, um, that comes out of like part of my work, um, is I developed uh, the Empowering Pregnancy Program at Shore Center in Kitchener, which is Shore basically has been trying to move in this direction in terms of offering that full spectrum of service. And so my other best friend, Ash Metzloff, is a outreach worker who supports low-income pregnant people in Kitchener. Um, And that's a program, again, very low-funded. We've had to fight to get funding for that in order to, like, provide access to things like beds for people who can't afford them or cell phones like like people will always have everything for their baby ready and then they won't have a single piece of clothing that fits them or a winter jacket and like everyone's so focused on the health outcomes after the child is in this world like this is going back to how much I hate the anti-abortion movement that like there is no, like, it's amazing how, like, we could have a whole other episode about things I learned about pregnancy through developing that program that I thought I knew and didn't, even though I was already deep into this abortion work. Like, basically where I was like, holy crap, pregnancy is actually more stigmatized than this. I didn't even know, like, how stigmatized pregnancy is and how little you know and how much they assume you know and how little support there is. But um, for parenting, yeah, so it's just like, it's one of those things where like midwives, like I like midwives are the people who do that. Like if you can get a midwife, like everyone I know most for the most part has really good experiences with midwives just because of how their course of care is. Because you get the long appointments, they explain things to you. You're there every couple weeks. And so like that is better outcomes. That's preventative care. And that's what um, could be happening around other reproductive health issues all under one roof. But instead, we've chosen to have a few hospitals here and there. And then, yeah, there are independent abortion providers in this province, but they were set up in the early 90s and no new ones have been added since. And so and two of them, the Mississauga Women's Clinic and the Brampton Women's Clinic, um, both charge, I believe it's a $75 fee. Maybe it may have gone up because of the pandemic because they're not fully funded through the Ministry of Health. And so in order to pay for that procedure happening outside of a hospital setting, that is what they charge their patients. Um, and that's true, like Canada wide, depending on which province you live in, it depends on whether or not they even have independent clinics. So like New Brunswick, you mentioned, they will not, they, like Clinic 554, I've been supporting Clinic 554 in Fredericton since I started doing this work. One of the first things I did was send money there multiple times because there was flooding in their clinic and they had to move rapidly because of the floods in New Brunswick. And that, and so the province of New Brunswick was telling women to drive from Fredericton to Moncton on a road that was closed due to floods. Like, it's not just that, like, that is the rule. It's that, like, these things have real-world consequences. Um, I think about, like, I've done so much work supporting people from the county of Grey Bruce getting to London, Ontario for abortions. And every single person I know who's in the abortion like movement or like is a social worker in this in southwestern Ontario and there's not very many of us uh they all have those same stories Owen Sound and that surrounding area like it's a there's tons of population there but it's all spread out it's super conservative and 
because of the stigma around abortion. And then when the Greyhound bus, uh, like when the Greyhound left, my first fear was, wow, no one's going to be able to get abortions and they're all just going to keep their pregnancies now. It's almost overwhelming, Robin. Like, so when I pulled you on the show, it, you know, obviously I'd asked you to come on before, but when Roe versus Wade was struck down, it became all about talking about abortion and access to abortion. But through this discussion, it's became so clear to me uh, it's become so clear to me that reproductive justice in Canada is so much more all-encompassing than preventing conservatives coming to power to strike down any kind of, or, you know, to maybe restrict funding. And it's so much more complicated that than that, especially when you use the tenets of reproductive justice, you know, the right to have a child, the right to not have a child, and the right to raise a healthy child. So, I mean, the amount of work that needs to be done seems like a lot. I don't know where, you know, you've, you've and you've shared so many great stories of folks that are doing the work um, and challenging the narrative, especially in learning to center uh, the important voices. But, um, and we're kind of drawing to the end of our time as well. So, I wanted to give you time to to talk about how the other work you do ties into this. I see you are starting an uncampaign school because I think like a lot of what you talked about is unlearning. You say it's learning, but really it's unlearning. And a lot of folks understand what that means. It's like what we've been taught is not entirely accurate and it, it's like a new type of knowledge. So uncampaign school kind of has that feel in its language is that the kind of idea behind it? Are we, do you want to take some time and kind of tie that into this discussion? Yeah, I would love to. Um, and then, and then I'll finish with kind of things that I think we should be working on, um, in terms of the political realm of things, because, um, I definitely have ideas and I also want folks to watch this summer, particularly with the conservative leadership race. Cause even though like, that's not the only, like basically, in essence, if folks take anything away, I don't think that that should be the only thing we're doing. And I think that we can learn to walk and chew gum at the same time, which is what uh, my friends in uh, the reproductive justice movement in the U.S., uh, the hosts of that Boom Lawyer podcast say all the time that Democrats say, well, we can't do this thing, so we're doing this thing. And why can't we do both? Um, And so for me, um, like, obviously, I, I come at this as someone who um, I moved to Ontario to hopefully teach at the post-secondary level because uh, I thought that was a possibility in 2012 based on things versus British Columbia because um, I had I was in B.C. under the Gordon Campbell and Christy Clark administrations in my youth. So uh, job opportunities here weren't exactly great for the humanities and uh so for me, I, I consider myself an educator first, and I think sometimes um, I come across as more aggressive online, especially in, on Twitter, than I am in real life, um, because I really believe that most people are pro-choice. But I also think that we need to, yeah, unlearn, honestly, for me, unlearn what we've been taught about politics and political engagement in Canada, because... Um, I think that a lot of us, like I was born in 1989, so I joke all the time that I've never lived in a Canada where abortion was legal. Because it's true, I haven't. Um, and that's a beautiful thing. And let's hope it stays but that way. I think that, I, 
think it will. And I sincerely, because of the movement that they, that organizers from all walks of life, and that's the other, like, like doing that abortion caravan project really just grounded me in the work that had been done to make that happen because it didn't feel obvious anymore. It didn't feel like, like, I think that sometimes we learn about those history moments because of the the narrative of progress. And it's like, of course this thing would happen, but like, no, like, like there was a multi-generational, multi-class, multi-ethnic, multi-racial movement in Canada from the 60s to 1988 that was working on abortion as a part of the broader women's liberation movement. And they really saw that as a piece of the puzzle. And so I I feel like a lot of that work and, and grassroots organizing um, has been lost. And particularly, um, I've seen... I've been frustrated in Canada at how we haven't really had our Bernie Sanders moment yet in terms of, like, having, like, just masses of young people volunteering. Like, I know it's happened a little bit, but our spaces are just really hard to get into um, and and not... Like, I find a lot of, in my experience, the leaders um, of for, like, boards and... and um, like I'm, I'm not talking about folks who are making like I, I like people on boards, nonprofit boards. Um, whether it's like, uh, even writing associations, like the kind of different perspectives that come there. Sometimes it can be really great, and sometimes I'm like, whoa! Like, how are we not prioritizing these same things here in terms of like, we are saying we have these same values. So if I sat down with this person, like I'm pretty sure that we would agree on most things, and so some things happening that's causing us to not be able to then make change or show up for each other and like we have to stop doing that like it's just like I've seen particularly in London um London has an amazing labor movement and we've worked really hard to kind of build different groups together and it's not perfect but but there's definitely a lot more action um if you look at what the Muslim youth did after the our London family stuff like Obviously, that was them, but that was in relationship to things like the Black Lives Matter organizing that was happening in London, like the organizing that my friend Jody was doing with the DSC. Like, like there's just a really good labor council in London, and um, they're problematic in some ways. They're still very white, but, like, there's, there's stuff happening, and there's groups that are trying to work together, even if, like, we don't always agree on everything, and, like... It, and I think that that's where, like, that disagreement, the, the ability to have conflicts and be able to talk about things, we we aren't doing that anymore in a way that's healthy. And it's it's hurt me, too. Like, I've had some really hard conversations with folks over the last couple of years where I've had to step back from work that I wanted to keep doing um, because I just didn't see, like, the amount of effort I was putting into it being reciprocated. And and that's not healthy for me either, right? Like, that's now that I've been exploring my ADHD and stuff, like, like it really has to be Loretta Ross in talking about reproductive justice and talking about her calling in stuff, talks about movement work as, like, geese flying and how, like, one person always leads, but then there's geese at the back. And if two of those geese, if someone's sick, two of those geese come down with them. And then, like, we rotate who's at the front of the V. And that's the only way we're going to get there. And so that... With all of that in mind, um, and just seeing, to be honest, like, 
I was prompted by International Women's Day this year and, and just feeling very much like women-only spaces aren't doing these things and it's very much becoming like a branding thing for like certain women to get ahead and the lean-in style feminism and stuff. Like, I just don't like it. And, and I know that... I be, but I also still believe optimistically in the good of the community and the good of people because I see it every day at my work in nonprofit life and, and even just like the people I meet in spaces and then work with things on. And so the Uncampaign School, which like I've been taking, a, I, I made the website, it's up there, we're, we're going to be actually running it the weekend of October 1st and 2nd. Um, I'm hoping to have it be very hybrid so that lots of people can come, even if you aren't in the cities we're going to do, like, actions in. Like, I, I'm trying to figure it out, and so we'll see. Like, it could go terribly, and that's what I think is part of um, what I'm trying <laughs> to learn. That goes organizing. And, just you. Right, but, that, but that's right. <laughs> that's what it is. Like, I want to teach people that. I want to teach people that it's okay to fail and that it's okay to try new things, but that it has to be fun, and it has to be, like... Like, we have to prioritize making sure that the people who are showing up, in particular the volunteers, are having a good time. Because that's actually what the other side is doing. Like, like I will say, the anti-abortion movement... Ottawa. Right? Like, like, sincerely. Like, no, they actually are. And so... Or, like, the um, PPC had a, had a rally at my f- former favorite strawberry farm in London during the last election, which was devastating because I can never go back there. I found a new one. It's okay, everyone. Hoffman's in North Waterloo. If anyone has any any information about fascism at Hoffman's, please come into my DMs because I'll be very upset. But they are not fascist. Miller Berries in London, do not go there. Um, go to um, Heman's. They're better. Um, that Heman's is the non-fascist one, but, um, but anyways, but like, and so my hope is that with all the friends that I've gathered over the last couple of years and, and my academic background and my work in the nonprofit sector, um, I, I've got a couple people, um, that I've been talking to in terms of figuring out what the structure of this is going to look like, but very much applying that reproductive justice base lens to even just the structure of how we're going to organize it. So, um, I am I'm hoping to be off just for the next week or so to rest a little bit after Roe falling and I and in some ways I'm glad that that was released just so that like oh my god now I don't have to guess what's next right like like the election being over is also like I have a lot of grief around it but it's also like okay those were four years where I fought really hard and now it's time to to reassess and and try and figure out because that fight was really hard, but it also killed me in a lot of ways. And so, like, I need to figure out what that balance is better because this is going to be a lot longer fight than just stopping Doug Ford from getting reelected, which was my, like, short-term goal. And so, because I realized that we need people in spaces that are our allies and we need to build those relationships because if we don't have those relationships where we can center our our like people humans and and what our communities need and and thinking through and sharing our different experiences that's how stuff like the convoy happens like that's why they're they're there and that's why i i'm glad you brought that up i've been thinking horrified there was some poll that came out when that was happening in january um about how like 
70% of Canadians didn't oppose it or something. Like, it wasn't that they were, like, pro-convoy, but it was just that, like, they understood why they were upset. And I understand, too, because our government has failed us incessantly over and over again at all levels. Yeah, it not doesn't just matter. COVID. Like, I, like, to be clear, like, London right now, there's this huge fight happening that I've been watching on social media where Safe Pl- Space London, which is... Uh, to give a shout out to one of the organizations I look to in terms of like what this type of structure would look like that I'm talking about. Safe Space London is a sex worker collective that managed several years ago to get a space. And they've been offering street outreach out of there since then to anyone. Like it's not just for sex workers because they're actually awesome. But essentially what's happening is apparently they're being attacked by people in downtown London who are saying, like, homeless or evil and all this. And so, like, there's been, like, actual harassment happening there. And London City Council is doing nothing. Like, like there is, they are being harassed in the city by other people. And it's just, and, and the homelessness rates are skyrocketing because um, the housing crisis has been trickling down the 401. I've seen it. I, I moved from London to Kitchener. And I have friends who've lived in Toronto. I've had enough conversations with various grad students in different communities over the last 10 years. Um, it, it's That's ha- the way it's happening. It's trickling down. And so Kitchener, Kitchener hit its peak and now it's London and because we go a little further, right? And so, um, yeah, it's, it's going to be about building what I wish I had when I uh was an undergrad what I wish I had in terms because you talk about like learning the different ways of feminism I took first year women's studies and I friggin hated that class I want to be clear I thought it was a joke I was like why do we need feminism I'm from Kelowna like women are equal here right um but like it's genuinely like that's what we've grown up telling and being told by our moms like our mothers I I believe and this is um something I think about often, like kind of what happened to women in Canada. Um, but I believe very strongly after reading Judy Rebick, uh, who was the voice of the Mergenthaler movement and saved him from garden shears in the 80s, uh, reading her memoir here is in my head that the Montreal massacre created such an intense fear amongst feminists like Judy and, and shame and guilt because they felt that they were responsible for those women's death, that that is why the boldness that we saw at the end of the 80s went away. And then we saw Women and Gender Equity Canada become the main space that these things were done. I believe that those leaders from our leaders who are still here, but the, the ones that are, all the women I've named drop are people who were leaders in the 60s, 70s and 80s. I haven't been talking about people like Canada's Hillary Clinton one and only uh, Christopher Freeland, who I'm supposed to feel is powerful and amazing in her role. Like, that that's what I'm supposed to feel as, that's feminism, right? Please, God, no. But but that's what we're being told, right? Yeah. I, I just, like, I, I see that the women who became leaders after that, became leaders after the massacre, and, and basically grew up in the 90s and then got law degrees and were essentially believed that things were, like, that it was done. Like, abortion was legal, like, the women's rights movement was over. In my life, those white women have been the biggest bullies um, and are often the ones who tell me I'm being too much or too aggressive or that I should just sit down and shut up. And what I 
And so I don't think that the answer is getting mad at them anymore because it's not working. Like I just said, calling them out is not working and I'm trying really hard to stop doing that um, because I worry about it harming the relationships I do care about. But saying that, um, I think that we need a space to have these conversations and it needs to be done in a way where like people are there learning the same way that I have been online. And so... um, it's that sort of connecting those two things, like all of these pieces of who I am together, but also then bringing really cool folks in. Um, and yeah, I think that Zoom will allow us to do that, where I could have like a speaker from BC who is from the abortion caravan come. But I also want it to be action because that's the thing that I I feel is often missing. Like I know you, I've heard you say this too about convention and the ways that it becomes a giant fundraiser for the party. And that's fine. If that's what convention is, tell us. Then I'm going to, and that's basically, like, for me, I need to create something new because I need convention to not be me just livid about everything that's going on. I need it to just be, like, what it is. You know what I mean? Like, I I think I'm done expecting more from existing spaces, and that goes for Western, too. Like, academics are just as culpable, myself included, like... I had to get out of the academy and into the community before I really understood how to do this stuff. And even in nonprofit, like, I could be guilty of this in a, like, because I, I don't do frontline work for my nonprofit. I have the privilege of getting to do communications for them. And I work really hard to make sure that whatever I'm saying reflects the staff, the community, um, all of it and and people whose voices aren't at the table and that's extra labor uh that most people don't do but that's what i need to we need to teach people how to do that we need to teach people those critical thinking skills again and not just like this is here are the waves of feminism or here's what happened in in the 60s when this thing was being organized or oh 10 years ago we were doing this thing at the g20 like great that's all awesome None of that is action. All it, like the number of book clubs I've seen pop up and just various things, it's it's very much um, like, and that was my biggest frustration with the Ontario election was the lack of people showing up to volunteer when we needed them. And, and I mean general people, like not, I have like various things, but just, yeah, we, like people who are just normal people in my community who say how much they care about the schools and this and that, but then won't come and do one canvas for me. Like, like that's who I'm talking about. And I believe that this school could help that in a way that's like, I really want it to be kind and caring and, and like as much as I can get animated in those things. Um, like one of the panels I'm, I'm talking to some of my friends, former co-organizers in London who like did all that work with me around Western is like us doing a panel where we talk about like what it means to like work against whiteness in feminism and how you do that because that is a really freaking hard thing and we're and talking about it in a way where it's we're not perfect like cuz i often think that um i go to political spaces and people don't talk about their mistakes and they don't talk about the hard stuff and the disagreements and then it feels fake because uh, we're all humans. We all have disagreements. Things happen. There's conflict. And covering up that conflict, whether it's colonization and white supremacy or just like someone being an asshole in a left wing space is what is killing us. 
I think that's particularly true in partisan politics, like keeping everything under wraps, especially genuine disagreements, you know, which, like you say, are needed to kind of get to an end. You know, those tough dis- discussions need but to it's happen. Normal. And like, like it, we have to have discussions and the discussions have to be a process. Yes, but partisan politics has become a marketing ploy, right? And it's not healthy to look like we're arguing amongst ourselves, especially. It, I disagree, right? Like, I think it would demonstrate a healthy democracy within something, something people would be drawn to. But... You know, um, let's pull it back to uh, reproductive justice just briefly because we have, you know, run quite long. And just leave us with some kind of think of your average listener that, you know, definitely does not see themselves yet as an educator. Right. Can't insert themselves there. Um, Maybe they heard the OFL's call to action. They've gone to a rally. This is the first time they've ever really been concerned about reproductive rights, their reproductive rights or in general. Think of what you could kind of tell them that they could, where they could be spending their energy or focusing on. Yeah. Well, so definitely um, look at what, different organizations in your community related to it doesn't just have to be reproductive rights because like I said there there are so few places in Canada and honestly so few people who get paid to do this work in Canada which um is a whole other conversation in terms of like the apparatuses of organizing that exist in the U.S. on this issue like wow I would have a very nice cushy job at this point if uh, I lived there (laughs) believe um because we just don't pay people to do this stuff and so a lot of um the work is done by community nonprofits but it's sometimes not because just because you don't have a planned parenthood type organization in your community does not mean that someone's not doing this work because everyone everywhere needs to access abortion and so I would try and learn where what does abortion services look like where you live And the place you would go to do that that's the easiest is choiceconnect.ca. That's the project I mentioned earlier. Um, It is a online app where basically you can put in um, your city and it will tell you the closest abortion provider to you anywhere in the country. And so from there, and it'll also tell you the distance, which is kind of cool. And and you can look at different ones and put in different cities. So feel free. Um, Part of why we created that uh, was to give folks that access in terms of that information because that's often what makes it difficult is hospitals keep it secret. This doctor keeps it secret and you often don't know if your family doctor is pro-choice. So that's actually something that you also can do is if you have a family doctor, and I know a lot of millennials and and Gen Z do not, but if you are lucky enough to have a doctor, uh, talking to them about abortion, uh, I used to do that genuinely when I first started doing this work in London because the abortion pill had just been legalized in Canada in 2015. I would go into my family doctor to talk about my anxiety and uh, anxiety meds and various issues, and I would be like, so are you doing this yet? And uh, then she'd be like, okay, back to your issues. And I'd be like, I know, but this is like really important. And so just like asking, like, have you even heard of this? Because 
if patients aren't asking them about it, which is oftentimes with stigma, they won't because they're worried the person's going to the, in small towns, tell the family member or what have you. Like if you're there and it's not about you, that gives you the opportunity to have that conversation and like not make it awkward, hopefully, because you have some kind of relationship with so your doctor. Don't like for wait me, this- until you need the abortion pill or you need the services. Yes. Right, Have this discussion to start opening the minds of your, especially small town doctors, so to speak, yeah. when, you, when you're or, in that safe doctors, space, right, like of not being exactly. exposed. And when it's and and also being like, I care about this for my friends and neighbors, right? Like that you like understand that this is important and that this is something that they can do to help improve access and educate. Like ask them, what do they do for unplanned pregnancies? Like how much do they know? Um, the same is true of ultrasound techs. One of the things that happens often that's really hard um, in the work that uh, my friends at Shore Center do, um, like the social workers there, is they will do everything to give people the most inclusive, beautiful abortion experience. They're fucking all-stars. Like, no one does a better patient experience in Canada than Shore Center around this issue. It's them and the Willow Women's Clinic in Vancouver. The level of just patient-centered care, it's it's unpre- because that's, uh, they're run by people who are not like, it's just a different structure. Like, Shore is a social worker-led clinic with family doctors that work with them. And so the social worker is the one who is making the decisions about policies, ultimately, in consultation with others. And that means that they do more in terms of trans inclusion, like, all these things. We will send folks to ultrasound techs who will then say things that are anti-choice to people. Because oftentimes you have to have an ultrasound to de- determine. Um, we did manage right before the pandemic to get that requirement taken off for the abortion pill, i.e. it was just a suggestion for an ultrasound rather than a requirement in terms of like, if you can't get access to an ultrasound in your community, like that's also an issue. But understanding that like, like anti-abortion stigma can show up anywhere and just like signaling to people that you're pro-choice. Like I dream of a world where at universities like that's a part of their training for all like softs when they're like in the dorms and stuff like I just really think that like normalizing it and and just seeing it as like any other procedure that's what um activists have been saying for a very long time on this issue and then I would say the other thing and this is really bringing that reproductive justice bent to it is Um, When I was working on the 2020 Abortion Caravan Project, uh, I got a chance to talk to Manitoba MLA Nahani Fontaine, who does not get the credit she deserves on this, but has been working on this issue forever. Um, She's in in the NDP in Manitoba. She has had her bill um, to pass a bubble zone law in Manitoba blocked by what was the Pallister government several times. So this is this is that's an issue that we could organize around right now in terms of helping um, push and put political pressure on those sorts of things. Um, and Nahani, in in talking to me, because she, she was helping me with the uh, in the 2020 abortion caravan project, there's a paper. So there's 10 issue papers in there with a bunch of calls to action for folks. So if you actually like like, let's say you're interested in um, trans inclusive abortion services, that is one of the papers and it talks about what needs to happen in order to make that better in all of Canada. 
But the decolonized healthcare piece, which I was one of the main authors on um, because we were just like indigenous activists are at such high capacity that I was working with several people to try and kind of bring it together who were being very kind and donating their time to me in the first wave of the pandemic for this. Um, We need to make it so that indigenous women have the ability to make this decision themselves in their home communities. Pregnancy, if you live on reserve or in northern Canada, is a very dangerous thing still. It is something where, like, we need more midwives. We need to allow Indigenous women to, like, train their own midwives and, like, build that capacity. But more than that, Nahani was talking to me about how um, because on reserve often it's a nursing station that's delivering the medicine there is no abortion because nurses aren't allowed to dispense the abortion pill and so that's something that like the government of Canada federally could do something about right now because healthcare on reserve is not administered the same way as healthcare at the provincial level and so Yeah, there are very specific asks in those issue papers, um, like so many. I am so proud of of that project because of it is action based. Like it tells the history of each of the each of the 10 pieces was themes that were identified by members of our movement past and present as like what the movement needed. What what would the abortion caravan have looked like in 2020? Like, the 1970 abortion caravan, they drive a coffin across Canada and say, women are dying, we need abortion, because of that therapeutic abortion law being so inaccessible to poor women, to rural women, uh, to people who don't have friends at the hospital in this one setting or that one setting, right? And so... What would that look like in 2020? Well, that was what that project was about. It was telling that history, telling that story, but also saying, hey, these are the things we need to do. And I haven't seen people take up all of that. Like, like I gave the movement a blueprint, uh, the country a blueprint, and it's there. It's like There are action items. There are things that we need to be doing. Um, I think about, like I already mentioned convention, like one of the things I would love to see um, one day, which should be an easy thing to pass, though, like, friggin', uh, there was an anti-abortion politician, like Matthew Green in, in Hamilton Center replaced the last anti-abortion politician in our part in the federal NDP uh, in 2019. So, This is not a distant past, and so we can say we're pro-choice all we want, and I actually do want to give Jugmeet uh, credit here because the federal party has been doing more of what we've asked than ever before under his leadership. There has never been a federal NDP leader who has done more stuff around abortion rights work in terms of holding Justin Trudeau accountable on some of these things, but it's not enough. And, like, we actually, like, when I say that, like, it's just, like, he's, like, we need to do more. And it's, like, no, we need to have an action plan, which is, again, what we, like, all of us on the left have been saying about the NDP is, like, we can say, we can criticize, but, like, we also need to be, like, no, what would this actually look like? What would national, like, like, making sure that every province has enough midwives look like? Because that's my, honestly, I joke all the time, give the midwives control of the entire healthcare system for like three to five years, put them in charge, because all of their stuff is so, like, they are the, the queens of patient-centered care, 
and I adore them so much. Like, I, I would love to do communications for midwives one day because I just think that they are the heroes of our healthcare system because they do all of these things with low intervention and, and they actually listen to you. They act, they try. They, How refreshing. They try their best. Yeah. So, right? It's so weird. And imagine if everyone else had to follow those rules. <laughs> um, yeah, in the same way you, you talked about the social workers structuring that one particular um uh, clinic, you know, we'll have midwives write, rewrite the Canada Health Act and all our That's problems all will be solved. Robin, you know, uh, you genuinely, Jessa, my dream, like you just <laughs> like that is my fantasy. Like you just came into my brain and like I've been joking about this for years, but like sincerely, like in my work in the nonprofit sector, I'm constantly like, but what if we gave more midwives? <laughs> like, what if we put the midwives in charge? People just know what Robin's going to suggest now. Just. It's, it's going to be about always the midwives. midwives. Um, it is about the. It's always about Brenda. I love Brenda. She is my Ann Perkins. Like to be clear, I am real life Leslie Nope. Anyone else takes that title, you're wrong. I am an actual living embodiment of that character, and Ann Perkins is her nurse, and Le Brenda is my midwife, and I tell her every day how she is a beautiful sun goddess. <laughs> well, shout out to Brenda, the sun goddess. Um, Robin, you have like so you're a wealth of knowledge, not just the history of reproductive justice, but where we need to go. I'm excited to share a lot of links because you've kind of given us, you've name dropped, you've book dropped, article dropped, blog dropped, podcast dropped. So, I mean, there's tons of resources that we're going to include to in our newsletter to our patrons, but also, you know, along the social media and stuff like that so that, you know, folks can learn even more. And yeah, I don't know. Uh, maybe we have to carry this conversation on again, you know, talking about specifically the kind of blueprint you I talked think, about that yeah. we didn't, you know, uh, maybe uh, bring you back on to give you space to, to talk about this, this blueprint specifically. But I do want to thank you, you know, for taking so much information and, and sharing it with folks. I think the examples you provided at the end there were really tangible steps where folks can start. Obviously, the work is much more massive than, you know, your family doctor. But if we could only imagine if every um, individual took that opportunity, those small steps and often those small steps into activism are what give you the courage to take the next steps and wade deeper and learn and unlearn more. So I was really pleased to kind of get those steps out to folks because I think a lot of folks when issues arise like this the way that the Black Lives Matter not arose as if it was never an issue but became a waking point for folks um but then they didn't know what to do right they know there's a problem they know there's a crisis they know other people are doing work but they don't know how to insert themselves so I thank you for all those examples especially so um yeah yeah, well, I actually will leave as far as folks just feeling like if you're hearing me and you're like, wow, this is inspiring, but how do I like do what she did? Uh, what you just mentioned. So I, I completely, wow, my ADHD is so bad, apparently. I've forgotten all my memories, but uh, <laughs> through the pandemic. Uh, but the first action that I ever did was my then um, like best friend at, at Western, Elliot Worsfold, and I were going to the first Women's March in London in 2016. 
And he said to me, Robin, I don't want to go if we're just going. Like, what's the point? Like, why, why would we just go to this? Like, we need to do something while we're there. And that was when Action Canada for Sexual Health and Rights had posted this website about the abortion pill and all the restrictions that had been put on it uh, because it had just been legalized, but like not really. And it was really confusing for doctors and everything was terrible. And Health Canada had somehow put like 18 regulations on, even though they don't do that for cancer meds, but whatever. Um, and so we created a little pamphlet and we, he and I went and we talked to some people at that march. I did a terrible job. He was like, you need to be like, like, you need to like go up and talk to people because I was so nervous. Um, and yeah, that was January 2016 that, or 2017. That was the first, first thing I ever did was just talking to people about this. And then I went into my family doctor next. Like, that was genuinely the directory. And then I set up a meeting with Irene Matheson, who was an MP at the time trying to get birth control to be legal. Like, like that was me. Like, I genuinely did that. I was like, hey, maybe I should... Uh, like, yeah, my my then... Like, but he, he's a very important person in my life. And we did that for several years together of just, like, organizing around these issues. And, and it was because a friend of mine said we can't just, like, we were both TAs at Western in Canadian history and, and we were seeing those things and he was like, we need to do this. And I was like, I guess. Um, and yeah, we had the worst pamphlets I've ever seen. Like, as in, I am so embarrassed by that first time. I, since then, the youths taught me at Western how to use Canva in our various table stuff. Like, genuinely, the youths were like, I was like, what is this magic? What do you have? And now everyone thinks I'm an amazing graphic designer, but I'm actually not. Canva just is really easy to use. It's worth the monthly fee. <laughs> it is. I have it. I have it through work, so I'm very lucky. Um, I like that story, Robin. I think that's such a. It's such an explanation. I think of what could go right with, you know, someone's first foray into activism, and what could, you know, go nowhere. And so, kudos to your friend for kind of holding you accountable. Going, no, no, you're not just going to get away with writing a placard. We are disseminating information. At the very least, you know, I may not chain myself to a door my first time out, but I'm going to teach rather than just holler and take a photo to put on my social media. So and that's really what this show is all about. So I I appreciate you kind of making that point that, you know, it's time for people to take that that next step to not just recognize that there's action and, and perhaps not just vote, but start to influence uh, a little bit broader of a spectrum around them so we know that we don't live in a democracy right now in Canada and that's a whole other podcast but it's true to be honest like if it to end it on this note the thing I'm actually organizing for next like that I see as a reproductive justice issue and as the issue of our lifetime Jessa not climate and it isn't like climate change is obviously I'm, I'm not gonna downplay that or any of the other inequalities um, but as a Canadian historian, uh, electoral reform is our issue. We need to ride or die on it. And I know that folks like Fair Vote Canada and stuff have tried, but like, we need to Morgenthaler this shit. Like, this is like, like, I am like, it is 1970 in 18 years, I want electoral reform. Uh, friggin' the premier of my former province who is now resigned, John Horgan, messed it up for all of us. My family had no idea what they were voting on. I was educating over the phone to multiple folks. Uh, yeah, we need to, we need to figure it out and it's going to take time. 
Yeah, I'm talking about the referendum that the BC NDP had that should have passed because we know historically in Canada that any large change like that has to happen at a provincial level first. So that is why I was fighting like hell to get Marjorie Knight into office because I know that the only way that this is going to happen, any of the things we're talking about, they might happen under the current system, but again, it's not democratic, so I don't believe that it will always happen. But I do believe in in first it reforming, like eliminating first past the pros, proportional representation, like like that is the path forward for our movements, and we have to fight for it. Like it is it like as in let's get the William Lyon McKenzie inspirations out, guys. <laughs> like, and if you don't know who I'm talking about, you need to look him up and you need to learn about the rebellions because that's where we're at now. Like that's how like passionate I am about elect and so like. I talk about abortion, but, like, that is the movement I will be building in order to get to that place with reproductive justice, because all those other things I just said to you, none of it can happen unless we get electoral reform. Like, that is how life or death, I believe that is for people in terms of our representation and democracy. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's to end on that note, um, that's part of why I'm creating the Uncampaign School, because... I can scream and yell about abortion all I want, but I don't believe that any of these things are going to change until our democracy is a democracy, and uh, that needs to happen first. Like in all things that we do, there's a team behind Blueprints of Disruption. I want to give a big thank you to our producers, Santiago, Hello Quintero, and Jay Woodruff. Our show is also made possible by the support of our listeners. So if you appreciate our content and would like to become a patron, please visit us at www.patreon backslash BP of disruption. So if you know of any work that should be amplified or want to provide feedback of our show, please reach out to us on Twitter at BP of disruption. Blueprints of Disruption is a project of New Left Media, an independent employee-owned company.